we left off last week in Isaiah 31, verses 8 and 9. Let me review that briefly because we have been examining some scriptures showing that indeed the Assyrian will uh, lead, it appears, the coalition that comes against Israel at the end time. <coughs> and after that has occurred, <coughs> God has shown that he will destroy the Assyrian. And it says in verse 8 of chapter 31, Then shall the Assyrian fall with the sword, not of a mighty man, and the sword not of a mean man, shall devour him. Now originally when Sennacherib came against Judah, against Jerusalem in particular, he fled back to his home, and his own sons killed him. So that's a historical thing, <clears throat> and just how the demise of the Assyrian will come at the end uh, is, in a way, a question. But we're going to see that they will come against the church before we're done with this, and that the church will hold sway over them. Whoever the beast is <clears throat> at the end, obviously, uh, it is shown in chapter 19 of Revelation that he will be taken by Christ himself and thrown into the fire. But we have to understand these scriptures in terms of the end-time prophecies and what will happen. The original fulfillments are a historical record, and the end-time fulfillment will not be exactly the same in every case. The story is laid out there for us, to see the general run of things, and there are some very, very specific prophecies about certain things at the end, which may be a little different than they were in the original historical fulfillment. The time certainly will be collapsed, whereas things happened over periods of hundreds of years back then, they will happen in a very short time at the end. Anyway, it does say that the Assyrian will fall, and he shall pass over to his stronghold for fear. He'll go right back where he came from. And his princes shall be afraid of the incense, says the Eternal, whose fire is in Zion and his furnace in Jerusalem. So they're going to be afraid of something at the end time, because Isaiah is indeed an end time prophecy. Now, <clears throat> I said last time I wanted to sort of take a little bit of a turn because there are some scriptures here in Isaiah which are very interesting. And there is a story repeated here in Isaiah 36 <clears throat> through 38, which is actually repeated three times in scripture. To me, that has to be significant. There are very few things that God repeats three times. Let's go to Isaiah 36, <clears throat> and in verse 1 it says, Now it came to pass in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. So this is the account of when he came, not against the tribes of Israel, but against Judah in particular. He had already taken the ten tribes of Israel, basically into captivity. Now he came against Judah and took all the defense cities, etc.
step one. Now I'm going to leave that story for right now, having introduced it, and I want to go back to Second Kings, Second Kings, <coughs> which is the first time that the story of Hezekiah is told. Second Kings 18. I want us to get a background of Hezekiah because I believe that there is an end-time Hezekiah, or has been, who fulfilled very possibly a lot of what we read about this king, Hezekiah. Now this is speculative in nature, and the type may not fit completely, I do not know, but we will thread that story through here as we go through these accounts of King Hezekiah of Judah. <clears throat> Second Kings 18. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. So you understand that there were two kings in Israel during this period of time, one over Israel and one over Judah. He was 25 years old when he was, began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. That is, he died at age 54, and even at that, we will see he had 15 years added to his life, so he would have died a man of 49, or no, excuse me, I'm trying to say 39, I guess, <clears throat> but God gave him an extension of life. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Eternal, according to all that David his father did. So Hezekiah essentially was a righteous king. We will see that everything he did was not right, and he suffered a penalty for that. But at the same time, overall, God judged him a righteous king in the order of David. Now, of course, David didn't always do everything right either, did he? But he was a righteous king overall, who will be over all the tribes of Israel in the world tomorrow. So Hezekiah does not have to be perfect to be cast in the same light as King David. Then it's recounted what he did do, <clears throat> and this is important, because we're going, this is a historical account back here, but we're going to see that it moves from history to prophecy. And if it moves to prophecy, then perhaps we should be very, very aware of what Hezekiah, as a righteous man, did. Verse 4, he removed the high places, he told them what was pagan, what was wrong, what was unclean in the world, what had to be made right, and what had to be made righteous. And he got rid of their false gods, their idols. I think Herbert Armstrong started doing that with us, did he not? He got rid of some false idols, Christmas, Easter, Valentine's, the hearts, you know. He showed us a lot of things that this society is doing that were pagan, that were wrong. And he took those high places and those idols and even the crucifix and the phallic symbols from before our eyes. That is tantamount to knocking down the high places in the Old Testament. 
because they had groves of trees in which they had stripped the limbs off that stood up as phallic or sexual symbols of the male. And there is where they went to worship. Many kings of Israel did not tear those down. I think Herbert Armstrong did make some strong moves in that direction. Now I've tipped my hand already as to whom I think Hezekiah may represent in the end-time church, in the end-time prophecies. He was essentially a righteous man. He made his mistakes, as did David, as did the original Hezekiah. And yet overall, he was a righteous man, and he certainly removed a lot of idols from your eyes and mine. So he removed the high places and broke the images and cut down the groves and broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For to those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. Even that which had been done for a righteous and goodly purpose they had come to worship. Remember, the serpent was put up on the stick, and by that the plague of serpents was stopped. So even that which had been done for a right purpose was used in a wrong way. So he took that down. And he called it Nehushtan, which in my margin says, a piece of brass. It was just a piece of brass. But at one point, it represented God's willingness to stay the surface. But that piece of brass had come to become an object of worship. I think it's interesting that that is included. You always had the groves, and you always had the high places that needed to be knocked down in the reign of almost every king, because after a righteous king would come, then an evil would always follow, or nearly always follow. And if you cut down the groves as a righteous king, you might know that whoever followed you would allow them to be raised back up. But here was something that the people of Israel revered. And it too was cut down. Maybe some of those things that we did in worldwide, which possibly were done originally in righteousness, we had perverted and had come to begin to worship ourselves instead of God, not knowing that we were blind and naked and could not see. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, verse 5, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. Hezekiah was a man who sought God. And there was a time in this nation of America when virtually no one was trusting in God. God raised up a man who would put his trust in God, who was willing to keep the Sabbath, who was willing to keep the holy days, who was willing to do a lot of things that even that group with which he became involved, which had come originally from true believers, had gotten rid of. He stood against them. 
It is not easy, I want you to understand, to knock people's gods down. People like their gods. It is a very daunting task in that day and in this day to tell people what they are doing is wrong that they need to change. It was not easy for Herbert Armstrong, and initially not many listened. It is not easy today because we come to like and adore the things that are around us, the things that we imbibe of, the things that we wear, the things that we eat, the things that we watch. You can say it, but does it do any good? Sometimes things literally have to be torn down. For he clave to the Eternal and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments which the Eternal commanded Moses. That would seem to indicate that if this historical record turns to prophecy in Isaiah, that the commandments of Moses are still to be very highly considered. He's speaking here basically of the ten. And the Eternal was with him, and he prospered wherever he went forth, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. We'll read the account of where the Assyrian came and sought that Hezekiah would follow him. He smote the Philistines even to Gaza, and the borders thereof from the Tower of the Watchmen to the Fence City. So he stood up against Israel's enemies, didn't he? Did Herbert Armstrong stand up against the spiritual enemies of the spiritual Jews? Did we have some enemies during his reign, if we want to put it that way, who came against the spiritual Jews and tried to destroy everything that had been made? Verse 9, And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years they took it. Now Samaria was the capital of the ten tribes. So Israel fell before uh, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. Just as Israel today will fall before the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto Assyria and put them in the different cities because they obeyed not the voice of the Eternal their God but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses the servant of the Eternal commanded and would not hear them nor do them. Interestingly, in the sermon that it came up in Matthew 13 which came back to mind here as I was standing here uh, Matthew 13, let's go to verse 52. Verse 51, Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? And they said, Yes, Lord, we understand. Then said he to them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed to the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, 
which brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. What does that mean? What was the Bible written by? Scribes. People wrote down the things of God. And when you need to know about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, you need things new and you need things old. First of all, you need the New Testament with the story of Jesus Christ coming to this earth to offer salvation. But you need the Old Testament too. You need to go back to the old things the scribes have written and add it to that New Testament story to flesh it out, to fill it out, to get a proper historical perspective and to understand what people have not done in the past and what must be done now and in the future. So you need both the New Testament and the Old Testament. And we're examining some things in the Old Testament today which have great bearing upon the new. Why was Israel taken captive? Because they did not obey God. Why is modern Israel going to be taken captive? Because we do not obey God. Nothing has changed, has it? Verse 13, Now in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. Different Assyrian king, different time, years later. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lake his saying, I have offended, return from me, that which you put on me will I bear. He tried to placate the king of Assyria first. And the king of Assyria appointed to Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. He tried to buy the king of Israel. He wanted to rule the land, or, or Judah, excuse me. He wanted to rule Judah as he already ruled Assyria. And if you can get somebody to take a payoff, it's much easier than fighting, which is what he tried to do. Well, what did Hezekiah do? Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Eternal and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Eternal and from the pillars which Hezekiah king of Judah had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. That does not strike me on the surface as being something God would approve. Was there a time in Worldwide Church of God when we began to give gifts and try to curry the favor of the kings of this world? And did a lot of us get upset about that? Rather than preaching repentance and turning from satanic pagan worship to the true God of Israel, did we begin to try to curry their favor? And did we speak in such terms that they would understand? A message of give and not get. And the message never got through. 
The king of Assyria then sent a fellow named Rabshakeh to Hezekiah, and I'm not going to read this entire account because we're going to read it again and again. So let's skip along a little bit. We'll get to this a little later. But the king of Assyria came and made his argument about how they should worship him and serve him rather than God. That is the story in a nutshell. And when Hezekiah heard that the king of Assyria was trying to take by peace the kingdom of Judah, chapter 19, he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went to the house of the Eternal. He did the right thing. Now he had already raped that temple of God, of the gold, and given it. But when he realized what was going on, he sought God. And he sent Eliakim, which was over the household in Shebna, three men, uh, to Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, verse 3, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble. Hezekiah said, Oh no, we are in trouble now. And of rebuke and blasphemy. For the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. Does that not tie in with a lot of scriptures we've examined over the last weeks? That at the end time, we are trying, but we don't have strength to bring forth. It's just almost too much to even keep pushing and trying at times. And we seek relief. It may be the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, has sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the eternal your God has heard. Wherefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that are left. Has the church been ransacked? And is it time to pray for those who are left? Same type of situation. Details aren't all the same, but we're in the same fix. We're still in the same type of trouble. Let's skip on down to verse 20 of 19. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the eternal God of Israel, That which you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the eternal has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you and laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at you. Very interesting. The king of Assyria, which I did not read all the story to you, had come and sent a man and saying, Worship me, and I will be nice to you. Don't worship me, and I will do to you what I've done to all the peoples before. I will kill you. So Hezekiah's trouble if he goes to God for deliverance. And God tells him, you send a messenger and tell the king of Assyria, we're sitting behind these walls laughing at you. That would raise what kind of response in the king of Assyria? 
They laugh you to scorn. It is interesting to me that he used the terminology, the virgin, the daughter of Zion. Because I think that we are going to see, before we're through with the story, that this represents the church. She has just shaken her head at you. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed, and against whom you exalted your voice and lifted up your eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? So he said, tell them we're laughing at you, and you've lifted up your eyes against God. You think we are in trouble, we think you are in trouble. Now this is a pretty bold approach, but it's what God told Israel to take, or Judah in this case. And then he tells the king of Assyria that he will be destroyed. Verse 23, By your messengers you have reproached the Eternal, and have said, With the multitude of my chariots, I am come up to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and will cut down the tall cedar trees thereof, and the choice fir trees thereof, and I will enter into the lodging of his borders, and into the forest of his carmel. I have digged and drunk strange waters, and with the sole of my feet have I dried up all the rivers of besieged places. In other words, you're a big bag of wind, king of Assyria, and you've bragged about all these things you have done. Just you wait, because you're facing the living God. Verse 27, God says, I know your abode, you're going out, you're coming in, and you're raged against me. I understand that. Because you're raged against me, and your tumult has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose, and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way by which you came. Verse 29, And this shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such things as you grow, as grow of themselves. And in the second year, that which springs of the same. And in the third year, sow you and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruits thereof. Now, I had thought that this was speaking to Israel, and we'll get to Isaiah and see the same account. But there's no change in subject here. It seems as if he's still speaking to the king of Assyria. And what he may be telling the king of Assyria here is you might as well not even try to plant. There's not going to be anything. You've had it. You better just eat that which you can find, that which is left. And in the second year, that which springs of that which was left. A time of war, not a time of planting. A time of trouble. In the third year, then, plant. So it may be sometime during the Great Tribulation that this begins to be fulfilled. But the Assyrian is going to come on hard times and famine himself. And it is only going to be, once Jesus Christ returns, that the blessing will be there the third year, then the Assyrian, the Egyptian, and the Israelite could plant side by side, you see. 
He goes on to say that the remnant that has escaped of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Now what was the king of Assyria doing? He was blustering against Israel, saying, I will destroy you and take you captive. And God is telling the Assyrians, you're not going to have much to eat yourself for a couple of years. Back off, buster, because there is going to be a remnant of Judah that escapes. And it will take root downward and bear fruit upward in spite of all you try to do. And I think there's a lot of encouragement there for us at the end. And I guess I shouldn't have gotten into this so deeply here because we're going to read it again in Isaiah. But it's the same story. And much of this is actually repeated in Chronicles and in Isaiah word for word. For out of Jerusalem, verse 31, shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Eternal of hosts shall do this. Therefore, thus says the Eternal, concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. Interestingly, a previous king of Assyria, as we saw, had taken Israel captive. And this king had taken all the fenced cities of Judah captive except Jerusalem. Who represents Jerusalem and Zion in the New Testament and in the end time prophecies? Hebrews 12, 22 through 23, which I've repeated many, many times, says Zion and Jerusalem picture God's people in the New Testament, the spiritual Jews. So there are some spiritual Jews who are going to take root downward and bear fruit upward. The called out ones, the chosen spiritual Jews. The rest of Judah is going to fall to the sword, just as in ancient times. But only those who represent Jerusalem and Zion at the end will survive it. Or that is, will not go into the great tribulation. Do you begin to see how the church here at the end, and Herbert Armstrong in particular, may have represented Hezekiah? There's more to the story. We will go on. And then he says he will defend the city, verse 34, to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So the only thing that was still in question at this point was the city of Jerusalem. The rest of Judah had fallen, gone, annihilated. Verse 36, so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. Well, verse 35 before that, that very night, an angel came and smote 145,000 Assyrians and killed them. That's a pretty big bite out of your army. 145,000 laying dead the next morning. So he picks up his bags and toodles out of there. Thank you. He went home and his sons killed him. 
Can God deliver his people? Now let's go to verse or chapter 20 and see a little more of the story of Hezekiah. In those days was Hezekiah sick to death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Eternal, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. The prophet of God came and told him, You're going to die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Eternal, saying, I beseech you, O Eternal, remember now how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart, is a better translation, and have done that which is good in your sight, and Hezekiah wept sore. He was still a young man. And it came to pass, before Isaiah was gone out of the middle court, that the word of the Eternal came to him, saying, Turn again. This happened very quickly, before Hezekiah could even get out of there. Hezekiah had prayed, and God told Isaiah, Go back in. Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus says the Eternal, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up into the house of the Eternal, and I will add to your days fifteen years. And I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs, and they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And then Hezekiah wanted a sign. So the sundial went back 10 degrees, as you remember. And that is probably when the calendar was changed from 360 to 365 and a quarter days. Calendars all over the world apparently changed at that time. Now enters another player on the stage. Let's go to verse 12. At that time... Berodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah hearkened to them and showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, and all the house of his armor, and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house, nor in all his dominion, that Hezekiah showed them not. Then came Isaiah the prophet and the king Hezekiah and said to him, What said these men, and from whence came they to you? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country, even from Babylon. So the king of Assyria has been on the scene, and now the king of Babylon appears as well. And Hezekiah showed him everything. Was there not a time, and worldwide, when we sought to show the world everything we had? We invited them into the auditorium, the house of God. We showed them all the fine things at Ambassador College. We let them walk all over the grounds. We showed them everything. Was not our king sick to death? Did he not claim that he was resurrected and given more life? 
that God extended his life for a certain amount of time? Very interesting parallel, isn't it? They came from a far country, and there is nothing that I have not showed them. Verse 16, And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Eternal. Be told, the days come, that all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have laid up in store to this day, shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Eternal. What has happened in Pasadena? Has it not all been carried into Babylon? It reminds me of Zechariah 5. You remember the two unclean birds that had the ephah, the harvest, and a talon of lead was put over the mouth so that they could not speak anymore? And they were carried into Babylon and set there on their own base, not God's base, by two unclean birds. Those birds might have names like Joseph and Joseph Jr. And we're quickly coming to the point that nothing is left. Nothing. And of your sons that shall issue from you, which you shall beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. A eunuch is impotent and powerless to reproduce. Now I gave you the analogy as laid out in Isaiah about the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and I think showed you that we are the eunuchs today. We are all that is left, and we are powerless to reproduce. All of the effort that all of those castrated churches is putting out, or are putting out, is basically producing nothing. And we will face the lions and the fires of Babylon very shortly. There will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the eternal which you have spoken. And he said, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? Interesting. God gave Hezekiah, because of the good things he had done, certain peace in his age, certain peace in the 15 years that he gave him, and it wasn't until after his death that Babylon came and took Jerusalem and took its sons there and made them eunuchs in the palace of Babylon. And it wasn't until after the death of Herbert Armstrong he faced a certain amount of difficulty. He did face down those who came to destroy. 
but he lived in relative peace until his death. Knowing that things were not right, saying they needed to be put back on the track, trying mightily to do so, starting with makeup and then moving on, and had extreme difficulty in getting it back on track, and yet, basically, he lived in peace the days of his life. And after his death, real trouble started. And the church, through evangelicals and so on, went back to Babylon, and those who are left are powerless. Is it not interesting that he says in Revelation 11, after the two witnesses have taken care of the church, that he then gives them power to go against the world? And we will get to that later. Now let's go to Second Chronicles. Here I'll pick it up in uh, chapter 28, 2 Chronicles 28. I want to come down to verse 20 of chapter 28. And Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him. This was to Ahaz, uh, who was an unrighteous king. And distressed him, but strengthened him not, for Ahaz took away a portion out of the house of the Eternal, and out of the house of the king of the princes, and gave it to the king of Assyria, but he helped him not. Does that sound like a silly dove going to Assyria and not getting any help? And in the time of his distress, did he trespass yet more against the Eternal? This is that king, Ahaz. So I'm setting the stage here, showing that there was a wicked king who did not seek God, but sought lovers elsewhere, politically speaking, and got nowhere. Now let's notice Hezekiah's reign, chapter 29. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Eternal, according to all that David his father had done. He, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Eternal and repaired them. I think Herbert Armstrong did that when he came into the house of God at Sardis, or at least he called it Sardis, and maybe it was, and he began to repair. He began to fix that which had gone wrong. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together in the East Street. And he said to them, Here, you Levites, sanctify now yourselves, and sanctify the house of the eternal God of your fathers, and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. And that ministry then would not listen. So what did he do? He moved and started a college to train men not to be filthy and unclean, and to remove that which was unholy. That is what the message was in the early years of Ambassador College, before it turned to basketball and various other things. For our fathers.
fathers have trespassed and done that which is evil in the eyes of the Eternal our God, and have forsaken him, and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Eternal, and turned their backs. Now we've read many scriptures which show God has turned his face from us. But who turned their back first? Who turns their back in Eden first? And it has always been that way ever since. God never turns from us unless we turn from him. That is a historical record. Verse 7, they've shut up the doors of, your por- of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burned incense nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. In other words, they're doing their own thing and they're forgetting God. They're not taking care of the spiritual things that need taken care of. Wherefore the wrath of the Eternal is upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has delivered them to trouble, to astonishment, to hissing, as you see with your eyes. Look around today and see that God has turned us to hissing and laughter. For lo, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Read Zechariah 1, where he tells us, don't be as your fathers, be different. Prophecy for the end-time church right now. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the eternal God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, be not now negligent. That is a good word to describe what we became in Worldwide Church of God. It wasn't that we were totally outright rebellious and said, I will not follow God. We understood, and we went through the motions, but we became negligent. Off the track, to put it another way and needed to be put back on the track. For the Eternal has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. Rekindle the fire. God said of us, we were lukewarm. We needed a fire rekindled. Then the Levites arose, gives their names, I won't go through all that. Verse 15, And they gathered their brethren and sanctified themselves and came according to the commandment of the king by the words of the eternal. God directed Hezekiah and Hezekiah directed them to cleanse the house of the eternal. Does that remind you of the book of Haggai? For he said, the priesthood today will not make a difference between the clean and the unclean. And I'll guarantee you this, anyone who does will not be very popular. It is not a popular thing to do. It is not popular with me and it is not popular with you. And it certainly is not popular with most of the church. We 
just don't like to be told we need to change things, to build a fire, a spiritual fire. Now, some of us might like to hear that, and we might realize it needs done, but it's hard to gather the sticks and make the fire when the wind is blowing and the rain is coming down and there is trouble, it is hard to kindle a fire. That's where the rub comes. It is not easy. And by nature, human beings are lazy. We would rather it be done for us. We would rather sit and say, so-and-so is doing it, and if I bask in that glow, I'm okay. And indeed, leaders today are saying, I am the one, follow me, and you will be okay. You don't have to do anything but pray and pay, and we'll do the rest. Brethren, we don't get off that easily. You and I all have to work. And the book of Haggai says they all came as God stirred them and they worked. Leadership and laity alike. No one can do it for you. You must work. They were told to cleanse the house of the eternal, the priests. You and I are the kings and priests today. The New Testament tells us very clearly that we are to be a royal priesthood. This isn't talking about something else, about somebody else. This is talking about you and me. I am in the ministry today, which is a type of the Old Testament priesthood. And you, as individuals, are accounted as priests as well. Soon to be kings and priests in the kingdom of God, but now as ambassadors doing the job of training for that. No one can get off the hook. It is a personal responsibility for both you and me. All right, then what do we do, you and me, or you and I, to be more correct? What do I do? What do you do? Verse 16, the priest went into the inner part of the house of the eternal to cleanse it. And they brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the eternal into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levite took it to carry it out abroad into the brook Kidron. Everything foul, everything bad, everything that God would not approve, they took out of the temple and took it down to the creek. Now they began on the first day of the first month to sanctify, and on the eighth day of the month came they to the porch of the eternal, so they sanctified the house of the eternal in eight days. 
And in the sixteenth day of the first month, they made an end. A day is as a year. I have been proclaiming this message now, next month, eight years. I don't know that that is significant. It just came to mind that a day is as a year, and that at least this message of cleansing the temple of God and rebuilding has been going out, not very powerfully, but at least it's being been said for eight years, and I, almost eight years, and I think that there's still an awful lot of uncleanness. Now, on a physical level, they cleaned that temple up in eight days. I don't know how much time we have left. So they sanctified the house of eternal in eight days, and on the sixteenth day of the first month, they made an end. So it took them eight days, and then they had, by the sixteenth day of the first month, they were all finished. <coughs> so maybe we've got eight more years. <laughs> maybe we don't either. Don't know what all this means. And I don't know that what we're doing necessarily is the application. But it's just interesting to note that it took about eight days to get the message across, and the, the job essentially done, and then they were finished in 16 days. Will we be finished completely and an end unto the work until we're in the kingdom of God? Maybe this next eight years covers the entirety of the period, and that could be cut short. Who knows? Anyway, then they made a report. They went unto Hezekiah the king and said, We have cleansed all the house of the eternal and the altar of burnt offering with all the vessels thereof and the showbread table with all the vessels thereof. Moreover, all the vessels which King Ahaz and his reign did cast away in his transgression have we prepared and sanctified, and behold, they are before the altar of the eternal. So Ahaz not only brought in filthy stuff, even that which was good, he got rid of then Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the rulers of the city and went up to the house of the eternal. They brought seven bullocks and then they did all these offerings and so on before God. I won't read all of that. Verse 34, But the priests were too few, so that they could not play all the burnt offerings. Wherefore their brethren, the Levites, did help them till the work was ended and until the other priests had sanctified themselves. They had to cleanse the temple. They had to cleanse themselves. For the Levites were more upright in heart to sanctify themselves than the priests. And also the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offerings and the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of the house of the eternal was set in order. Much as Luke said, I have come to set things in order at the beginning of the book of Luke. And Hezekiah rejoiced in all the people that God had prepared the people, for the thing was done suddenly. Interesting. God is going to come suddenly to his temple, Malachi. God will turn his face to his people at the end very suddenly. In one day, another place says.
And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Eternal at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Eternal God of Israel. For the king had taken counsel and his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at that time, because the priests had not sanctified themselves sufficiently, neither had the people gathered themselves together to Jerusalem, and the thing pleased the king and all the congregation. So they established a decree to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that they should come to keep the Passover to the eternal God of Israel at Jerusalem, for they had not done it of a long time in such sort as it was written. They didn't do it right. We got to the point we did it in name only. But we came to keep the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Tabernacles and all the other days of God primarily to enjoy the time ourselves. Not to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, but to lay on beaches and go to country shows and fishing or whatever it was we thought we came to do. It had not done been done as we had been told for a long time. Verse 8. Or verse 7, Don't be like your fathers and like your brethren, which trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, who gave therefore gave them up to desolation, as you see. We see a desolated church today. Now be you not stiff-necked, as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Eternal, and enter into his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever. And serve the eternal your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. Do we keep getting back to the same message no matter where we go in the Bible? It's everywhere, isn't it? For if you turn again to the eternal, your brethren and your children shall find compassion before them that lead them captive, so that they shall come again into this land, for the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. And then they passed the word, and they killed the Passover. <coughs> Let's go on down to verse 18. For a multitude of the people from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. They didn't do it like God said. There were some who were taking it unworthily, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord pardon everyone that prepares his heart to seek God. Now, he didn't pray that God would just give a blanket forgiveness for everyone. He prayed that God, the good Lord, would pardon everyone that prepares his heart to seek God. And that has been our message for a long time, to turn to God with our whole heart, whatever that means. Verse 19. 
prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. In other words, there is a time to say, God, forgive us in spite of ourselves. Please make up the difference and forgive us and pardon us, even though we're not completely clean. Because I do not believe that it is possible for us to become absolutely, completely, perfectly clean until we are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So there comes a point where we strive and we work at it and we clean and we clean and we clean and then we beg for forgiveness and mercy. And the Eternal hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. I had not focused on that until this moment, but I was standing here as I read it reflecting that even my prayer a lot lately has been, forgive us in spite of ourselves. Because it has become increasingly apparent to me that I still have many faults and weaknesses and problems, and so do you. And we need help in spite of ourselves. And God listened to that prayer. Same approach and attitude. I think that has been the prayer on the lips of a lot of us. That we know we are not righteous as we need to be. We're not as clean, clean as we need to be. There are still impurities in all of us, and we must have God's Spirit and the blood of Jesus Christ if we're ever to be accepted. And did not God even tell us that if the righteous scarcely be saved, where does the unrighteous and sinner appear? There simply will not be liars and thieves and adulterers and Sabbath breakers in the kingdom of God. We simply have to keep the laws of God. And then, if we don't do it perfectly in spite of all our efforts, we pray for mercy and forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ, because there is none righteous, no, not one. None of us have completely lived up to it, but at some point God is going to heal the people if we pray this prayer that Hezekiah prayed. And I think Herbert Armstrong may have prayed that prayer many times. I knew the man somewhat, and I know that he was very concerned that we weren't getting it. And he told us over and over, you're not getting it. And how many in the church today are getting it? Most still do not even realize what has happened and is happening. And most 
are not turning to God with their whole heart. Most think their heart is fine because their ministry is telling them they are Philadelphians. Someone else has the problem, you don't. And I am going to stand here and tell you we are the problem. We must change. I cannot change anyone anywhere else. And bottom line, I can't change anyone but me. You have to change you. But it is my job to tell us we must change. So then they kept the Passover, and they did it in such joyous attitude that they said, let's keep it seven more days. Their whole focus had been putting sin and uncleanness out of the temple. That's what the Days of Unleavened Bread picture. And they said, let's go another seven days cleansing and purifying. They got the picture. They began to get it. We need to be clean. We didn't make it in seven days. Let's keep it seven more days and purge ourselves. That we be clean before God. They finally realized it isn't enough to go through the motions. We need to do something. And they kept it with gladness. Verse 25, And all the congregation of Judah with the priests and the Levites and all the congregation that came out of Israel and the strangers that came out of the land of Israel and that dwelt in Judah rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there was not the like in Jerusalem. It had all fallen down. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even to heaven. From a ministerial standpoint, I look forward to the day when I can say to all people who will hear, you got it, you made it, and there will be joy in Jerusalem, the church. Because God has turned our face to us after we have turned to him with our whole heart. That's the lesson here. Maybe couched in an Old Testament story, but the message is the same. And then Hezekiah put things in order. Chapter 31, verse 2, he appointed the courses of the priests and the Levites after their courses to do the job of the ministry, to keep the people right. Verse 4, Moreover he commanded the people that dwell in Jerusalem to give the portion of the priests and the Levites that they might be encouraged in the law of the eternal, 
In other words, send the tithes and the offerings so that they might see a need and have the right desire to do the work of God. And they brought the tithes of all things in abundance in verse 5. They brought in the tithe of the ox and the sheep and the tithe of holy things which were consecrated to God and laid them in piles in verse 6. And then there was plenty. They had enough to eat and have plenty left. And verse 10, verse 12, and brought in the offerings and the tithes and the dedicated and the dedicated things faithfully. That reminds me of the book of Malachi, where God says to the end time church, who say, How have we robbed you? What have we done wrong? We've been good. And God says, in tithes and in offerings, you have robbed me. They set this right in this resurgence. In the ministry, verse 18, in their set office, they sanctified themselves in holiness. Does not God tell us, be you holy? Yes, he does. Verse 21, and in every work that he began in the service of the house of God and in the law and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with all his heart and prospered. After these things, and the establishment thereof, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah, and encamped against the thin cities, and thought to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come, and that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with the princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains, which were without the city, and they did help him. There are some scriptures we'll get to which indicate that the Assyrian is going to come into our land. We've already seen some of those. And that we have to stand against the Assyrian when he comes. Verse 25, But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was lifted up. He was sick to death. Hezekiah, the end of his life, had a problem. His heart was lifted up. In other words, he became vain and proud of what he had accomplished. And he thought he was something else. Therefore there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, his vanity, his ego, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Eternal came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. When Herbert Armstrong saw what he had done, and that he had allowed his ego to get to him, he repented. And in the days of his life, the church stayed together for the most part. Not perfectly, but for the most part. 
And the wrath of God did not come until after his death. Then God scattered the church like so much vomit because of our Laodicea and lukewarm attitudes. I think that there is a direct type here. And Hezekiah had exceeding much riches and honor, and he made himself treasuries for silver and for gold and for precious stones and for spices and for shields and for all manner of pleasant jewels. Did we not have $250 million in income a year? Did we not build fine things and have all kinds of artwork and jewelry and so on around? Yes, that happened. And he goes on and on about what he had done. This same Hezekiah, verse 30, stopped the upper water course of Gihon and brought it straight down to the west side of the city of David, and Hezekiah prospered in all his work. So he thought he had done a lot. Howbeit in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent to him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him to try him, that he might know all that was in his heart. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. We've examined the story in the kings, now we've read the one in Chronicles, and the rest of it is in the book of Isaiah. What time is it? Let's go to the book of Isaiah. Now here we go, and I've already made the transition in the things that I've said so far, but here we go from a historical record to a prophetic event. The book of Isaiah is written to the end-time church in the latter days. An interesting story. I didn't read it all back there. Let's examine the rest of it now. <coughs> Isaiah 36. It was in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defensive cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a great army. So this was an intimidating force that the king of Assyria sent. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Then came forth to him, Hezekiah apparently sent out, three men. Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. And Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On the world stage, the beast is going to arise, and all the world will worship the beast except whom? Everyone but the elect of God. Only the church will stand against the beast. All the rest, small and great, will fall on their face before the beast. This is symbolized in the book of Daniel, where only Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up against Nebuchadnezzar. And all those beasts 
of Daniel are going to be amalgamated together as one horrific beast at the end. It is summarized and put together in the book of Revelation, and we've already seen that. But the king of Assyria came and says, Thus says the king, the king of Assyria, and that is supposed to make our blood run cold, chills run up and down our spine, and we're supposed to fear. That is according to the king of Assyria. What confidence is this wherein you trust? The king of Assyria is sending you a message, people, saying, Who is this God you worship? Do you think that this God can save you from the Assyrian? I say, say you, but they are but vain words. He says, I say to you, but here's what you say to me. Okay? I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom do you trust that you rebel against me, says the king of Assyria? Who is it you trust that is greater than the beast? Lo, you trust in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt. You look back to the Red Sea. That's a long time ago. Whereon if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all that trust in him. At one time Israel was under the king of Egypt. God delivered them by his mighty hand. But where does Israel go at the end? The book of Hosea. They go to the Egyptian and the Assyrian like a silly dove. And the Assyrian says, you better come to me. Don't go to Egypt. Don't go anywhere else. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? Now, the king of Assyria didn't understand the truth. What he saw from a distance was that Hezekiah was removing all religious artifacts and churches from the land. He thought that Hezekiah was tearing down religion. He did not understand that Hezekiah was tearing down false religion and restoring the truth. You saw Hezekiah take away all these things that you trusted in and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar. Hezekiah said, You're not going to worship before these things anymore. I'm getting rid of them, even including this golden snake. Now therefore give pledges, I pray you, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you two thousand horses if you be able on your part to set riders upon them. Join my coalition. And I will give you 2,000 horses. All you have to do is put the men on them to ride them. 
How then will you turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? And have I now come up without the Eternal against this land to destroy it? The Eternal said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. You think you're worshiping God? God told me to destroy you. Now that's not altogether untrue. Did not God say, O Syrian, the rod of my anger, I am sending you to destroy Israel? Yes, he did. The king of Assyria has a commission from God to destroy our people, Israel. It is in his heart to cut off nations, not a few. So in a sense, he was speaking the truth. Then stood Eliakim and Shebna and Joah under Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray you, to your servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it, and speak not to us in the Jews' language in the ears of the people that are on the wall. Get this? The ones who went out to talk to Rabshakeh said, Keep this quiet. We don't want the people to hear it. This is embarrassing to us. We have to figure out what we're going to do without the people knowing what's going on. Speak to us in Syrian so these people can't understand it. But Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words? Has he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall, that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? We're not just after you leaders. We're after all those guys sitting on the wall. Everyone. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language, and said, Hear you the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Could it be that some of our leaders today in this nation want to make a deal quietly with the beast and don't want us to know about it? And yet it's going to come back in their face? He said in the Jews' language, Hear you the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for you shall not be, he shall not be able to deliver you. There will come a time when the coalition against America will win, and this Babylon will fall, and the only ones left standing against the beast will be the elect of God. As I have said before in this series, it's going to be the church against the rest of the world. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Eternal, saying, The Eternal will surely deliver us. They will come to the people of God and say, Don't listen to your ministers. 
God will not protect you from this beast. They will try to win you away from God. Don't say the Lord will surely deliver us. This city, this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and eat you every one of his vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink you every one the waters of his own cistern. Is that the message of the new world order? The message is, if you will all tear down your sovereign borders, if you will all come together in a new world order, everyone will prosper. Everyone will have food to eat and a place to sleep. We will redistribute the wealth of the world so that everyone has plenty. We will solve all the problems. That is the message you are going to hear. And in fact, you are already beginning to hear it if you are reading and watching the right things. It is a form of communism. We will all have things in common, and everyone will have his own vine and his own fig tree. Now, Christ promises that, but remember Satan is a great conspirator and a great counterfeiter. And this beast that is arising is going to promise the same things to people that Jesus Christ offers to people. But it will be a counterfeit, because those people who will be running the New World Order have their own pockets in mind. And they plan to be a ruling elite, an Illuminati, the Illumined Ones, and the rest will be slaves. That is what happened in Russia, where communism was placed upon people. They were told that they would prosper, and everyone would have his own vine and fig tree. And instead, the czars prospered, and instead, the leaders prospered, and had wonderful things and plenty of champagne and caviar, and the people didn't have enough to eat. There is the promise of communism, and there is the reality of communism. And that's what the New World Order wishes to impose upon us. Whatever you might call it, the bottom line is a ruling, wealthy elite served by peasants. What do the scriptures say will happen to Israel? Famine, pestilence, and war, and those who survive it will be taken into captivity as slaves, as peasants. That is what God says will happen to Israel, in spite of all the promises that the New World Order has to give. You'll have everything you need until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. 
They're going to say, if you'll go to China or to Egypt or to Germany, we'll give you everything you need. Beware, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, the Eternal will deliver us. To a lot of people, that will sound pretty hollow when you have the Assyrian army in the coalition against the church. Because Israel will already have fallen physically at some point, and the only thing standing against the beast will be the elect, the church. And if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. So beware, says the Assyrian, God will not deliver you. He goes on, has any of the gods of the nations delivered his hand, or his land, out of the hand of the king of Assyria? This is a worldwide beast. Where are the gods of all these other peoples? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand, that the eternal should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they held their peace and answered him not a word. Just as Jesus Christ, 2,000 years before, had answered not a word. For the king's commandment was saying, Answer him not. Then came Eliakim the son of Hilkiah and the other two with their clothes rent and told him the words of Rabshakeh. So these men were on Hezekiah's side, but the Assyrian certainly was trying to intimidate them and trying to offer them whatever it would require to get them to turn against Hezekiah and against God. Now the analogy of Hezekiah might extend beyond Herbert Armstrong, because he's dead and gone now. And the Assyrian has not come yet. Hezekiah may be a type not only of Herbert Armstrong, but of the entire, entire end-time church. Because Hezekiah died and others took over, and the only ones left against the Babylonian system really were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and whoever might have followed along with them. They were the eunuchs for the kingdom, just as we are to be that. Not with great power. <clears throat> and it came to pass, when King Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Eternal. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and of blasphemy. Are we facing the worst time of trouble today? Is this a prophecy? For the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. Here we are, right now. Current condition of the church. It may be the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, has sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the eternal your God has heard. Wherefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Does God not say that there will only be a remnant of Israel and certainly only a remnant of the church? Pray for that remnant. 
So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Eternal, Be not afraid of the words that you have heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. That reminds me of Isaiah 8, which we covered recently, where he says, Don't fear the coalition, the conspiracy. Fear me, says the Eternal. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. He did to the sword of his sons. Historically, how it will play out in the end time, we shall see. But apparently, if this is speaking of the Assyrian who is then the beast, we already know that there's a little bit of a change and that Jesus Christ will take care of him as per Revelation 19. So, verse 10, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria, because he says, We're going to destroy you. And the beast will do his utmost to destroy the church at the end. If God does not take it to a place of safety, we've had it. Revelation 12 says that he will. And I pray that you be accounted worthy to go there. That, Because he addresses God sitting among the cherubim and says, You've made heaven and earth. You're the almighty God. Incline your ear, O Eternal, and hear. Open your eyes, O Eternal, and see, verse 17, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which is sent to reproach the living God. Almost the same words that David spoke before Goliath. And then he says, yes, the Assyrian has wasted all the lands and the countries, cast their gods into the fire. Verse 20, Now therefore, O Eternal, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know. Is this a world-ruling empire at the end? Yes, it is. That you are the eternal, even you only. And it is going to be at the end of this age, when the great tribulation has occurred, only then, finally, will all the nations of the earth say of the truth, God is God. You and I are today in the position of Job. We are here today to learn that God is the God who created heaven and earth, and where were we when Leviathan was formed? And the rest of the world is not ready to enjoy that knowledge and understanding yet. It will take the destruction and the shaking terribly of the whole world before they get it. Hopefully we get it today. Now therefore, eternal our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the eternal, even you only. <clears throat> then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the eternal God of Israel, Whereas you have prayed to me against an accurate king of Assyria, this is the word which the Eternal has spoken concerning the king of Assyria. The virgin, who is the virgin? 
Paul presented the Corinthian church as chaste virgins before God. The virgins at the end are those who are alive out of those people who constitute the 144,000 virgins before God, Revelation 14. Speaking of the church here, the virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you and laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at you. We read this back in Kings. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you exalted your voice and lifted up your eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? We will be able to tell the beast and all that follow him, you don't know who you're up against. You're up against God, not us. We're just little people. And then he goes on and tells the king of Assyria the things, or sent the message that we have already read back in Kings, uh, culminating in verse 31 and 32, telling the king of Assyria that a small remnant of Judah will remain take root downward and bear fruit upward. And I believe that's speaking of the church, and ultimately then, of course, it's speaking of the remnant of physical Israel and Judah, who will live into the millennium and take root downward and bear fruit upward. The king of Assyria will not be able to destroy God's plan. That's all there is to it. Then as he recounted the story of Hezekiah's imminent death and God giving him 15 years. We've already read that, so I'm not going to go there. Uh, it talks again of uh, the lump of figs down in verse 21 and how Isaiah put that on there. And it was apparently a boil that was going to kill Hezekiah, and it didn't happen. So let's stop there at the end of chapter 38. Uh, on this story that is recounted three times about what happened to Hezekiah and in this prophetic context. And next time I speak, we'll go somewhere from there.